American songwriter, we had the opportunity to talk to Richard of Big Mother Gig over Zoom video. Richard talked about uh, being raised in Milwaukee and how he got into music. He took piano lessons at a very early age. Then he got into the mandolin and eventually the guitar. He didn't start writing or recording any music until he was in college. And he told us about how he used to record himself in this really uh, creative way of kind of making his own four track, so to speak. He talks to us about forming Big Mother Gig, putting out those first Big Mother Gig records, moving to New York, and that's where he started the Burnside Project and eventually Pocket. He goes through that portion of his career with us to the moment they decided to get Big Mother Gig back together 20 years after they had broken up. So he talked to us about that and their brand new record, Gusto. You can watch the interview with Richard of Big Mother Gig on our Facebook page and YouTube channel at Bringing It Backwards. It'd be amazing if you subscribe to our YouTube channel and like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Bringing Back Pod. We'd appreciate your support if you follow and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We're Bringing It Backwards with Big Mother Gig. Our podcast is all about you and your journey in music, uh, how you got to where you are now. And of course, we'll talk about the new uh, Big Mother Gig record as well. Cool. Let me just close this window because it's a little noisy. No problem. <clears throat> yeah, I was uh, kind of perusing your site. You've got to be just like you're doing how, like how many of these? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> a lot. Like, aren't you running other things to talk to people about? <laughs> No, because all I talk about is their life. So it's very easy for me on my end. I just am fascinated with, uh, you know, people and, and biographies and autobiographies. It's always just been something I've been fascinated with. And yeah. I've been in radio for 16 years. So kind of okay. figure out a way to, to, to mix the two and <laughs> my love of music and love of that. So it, it's, it's fascinating to me. I love hearing cool. about people's journeys. So. Um, I'd love to to hear yours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, where do we start? <laughs> um, talk to me about where, where where were you born and raised? I was born uh, in Chicago, um, but I uh, when I turned three, my folks moved up to Madison, Wisconsin. So okay. I spent uh, my whole life uh, grew up in in the same house in Madison, um, and um, yeah, went to elementary school and then high school in Madison. And then um, I went to Milwaukee for college at Marquette University. Okay. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. I didn't know if you're going to keep going. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Like there's no, there's yeah, more, no, no. Right? no, 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 no. So I'm curious now, how did you get into music? Um, well, I always loved music as a kid. You know, my, my, um, I have these memories of like, my father and my mom having this, this turntable with not many options, but I remember, you know, they had Johnny Cash records and Henry Mancini and like Glenn Mathis and all of that kind of stuff. And so I always liked music, but um, I didn't sort of connect with it other than as a fun thing, you know, I didn't connect with it emotionally really until probably uh, high school or maybe eighth grade or so. I remember some friends telling me about, you know, bands like the Sex Pistols and the Clash. And then suddenly it became this thing that was a little, a little off the mainstream, you know, it wasn't 
the Madonna song that was on the radio. It was, you know, discovering the dead milkman or whatever. So yeah, in high school, I started really getting into music, you know, making mixtapes, you know, between all our friends, we would go down to the local record store and we'd all walk in and we'd each buy, you know, one or two records and then we would just pass them around back and forth between each other. So we were listening to everything from like new wave and alternative and punk and, you know, kind of stuff like that. Um, and I played piano as a kid. Um, I picked up piano pretty early from what I'm told, like, I don't know, seven or eight years old, I started taking piano and excuse me, um, came to it pretty naturally. Um, so I played piano all growing up somewhere in middle school, I played drums in like the marching band. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Just, yeah. Did you start on like snare or did your parents buy you a kit? Like how did, how did that start? So we had a school band and um, you know, you would, you were a percussionist as you know, oh, so, sure. so like sometimes you'd have just the giant bass drum mm-hmm. that you'd be standing there holding and, and hitting it. Sometimes <laughs> you would get the snare. The snare was always the, the fun one. Everyone wanted the snare, but, right. you know, uh, and then sometimes you'd have those giant symbols where you'd go oh, like yeah. this, you know, it must be a fun one too, though, because you get to make the most noise. It is very noisy. The, the thing I remember though, is you're, you only play it like once or twice a song. That's true. You got to carry them around for quite a bit. You're, you're you standing to... there a long time just holding <laughs> these two symbols. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I, uh, my grandfather had played the mandolin. He was this, you know, um, Chicago working class Italian guy who just loved playing mandolin. And um, he passed away and he, uh, through some sort of chain of command, the mandolin wound up with me. And so, oh. um, yeah, so I started playing the mandolin first uh, in terms of stringed instruments. It was the first thing I learned before I learned guitar. Um, and then I went to college and then it was like, okay, it's time to get real about music. So I got, uh, an acoustic guitar and started writing and recording and that's, that's, so you didn't didn't start writing music until you were in college. Is that like, what made you decide like, Hey, I want to, you know, get a guitar and kind of take this more seriously. Um, I don't know. I mean, I did some writing in high school, but they weren't, you know, I wouldn't say they were anything uh, fully formed. It was more just kind of like trying to sound like other people. Um, you know, like I remember I wrote this song where I was like, well, how did new order make bizarre love triangle? And I just remember kind of like making a different sort of take on that sound using a Casio keyboard. Um, when I got to college, you know, I don't, I, it's a really good question. Cause I, I knew immediately I wanted to start recording songs. Um, And I had this very, I never wanted to, I was very cheap. (laughs) So I, it's not that I didn't have money, you know, I had money to eat and stuff, but I just didn't like spending money. So I had like a tape deck, a clock radio with a cassette deck in it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then I had a boom box. So I would take my Casio and I would, you know, do some drums and some bass lines and record them into one tape put that tape into the boom box and then grab my guitar and then hit play and turn it up as loud as I could and then sing along with it. 
<laughs> and then record that. So doing like sort of like pretend your own four track. track. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. Awesome. it. All sounded awful, but <laughs> but I could get the ideas down. That's really what it was about. Sure, sure. So you started writing songs and or obviously recording them that way. Is that kind of the beginning of what became Big Mother Gig, or like how did? Yeah, what, actually, what was the it first is band you really started. Yeah, so I, I recorded like four or five albums worth of of these songs that wow. I just kind of just described to you. Yeah, well, I was, you know, I wouldn't say that any of them were, are worth revisiting. They're, they're really just kind of like, um, you know, experiments. It's like, right. oh, I, I just discovered Toad the Wet Sprocket. So what would a song like theirs sound like, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, and stuff. And then a lot of them were kind of joke songs, too, about my friends and stuff. Um, but there were a few songs that I then got a couple people together and we started playing those songs um, in a basement. And that did eventually become Big Mother Gig. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. And when, when that band started, what was, what was the beginning like? Were you trying to find shows around the college area or how did the band really kind of get going? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very, um, you know, like stumbling forward, you know, I, I, um, the guy who lived in the dorm room next to me played guitar better than I did. And so I said, let's start playing together. So first it was just me and him. And we did some open mics at the, the, the union, you know, like the student union. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, we found a bass player and then we eventually found a, a drummer. And then there was a lot of coming and going until we finally sort of solidified on this unit, this four piece band. And we came up with the name and then we were just playing basically like house parties, you know, like we had maybe five originals and then a lot of covers. I mean, this was in the nineties. So we were Mm -hmm. playing like Pearl jam and Nirvana songs and stone tumble pilot or uh, no screaming trees, you know, all of of that stuff. We did Jane's addiction. Like it was, you know, we were a party band basically. Mm -hmm. Um, and then about a year into that, <clears throat> I think it was probably my senior year of college at that point, it felt like um, we had more originals than covers. And then we started to record those originals. And then we started to play out in the clubs instead of just the local you know, school hangouts. And from, well, what, was, what were those first shows like? I'm curious to know, like, was it terrifying to kind of going on stage, like from your, you know, recording four track days to now you're playing in front of peers of yours, especially yeah. on an open mic night. Was that, you remember those, like, was that pretty terrifying? Like, tell me about that. Yeah. I mean, I'd always been relatively comfortable being on a stage in front of people I don't know why I, it just never, you know, I was in plays in high school and stuff and I never really felt terribly nervous up, you know, standing in front of a room full of people, mm-hmm. but I do know I have a recording of that first open mic and. Oh, you do. I, I do. I do. Wow. And it's um, yeah, just a cassette recording. And it's funny because I often use humor to um, deflect any, potential criticism you know like you can hear me laughing in the middle of songs you can <laughs> making you know bill clinton jokes like <laughs> oh man <laughs> just you know doing anything i can to make anyone think you know don't take this too serious like we know we're not that good so but we know that you know like it was kind of almost a, a, a like, certain amount certain certain parts of it were almost a joke you know 
like self-deprecating <clears throat> type thing. Yes, exactly. Okay. okay. And yeah. when, well, that's amazing that you have that tape. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we went through like a kind of a big, so Big Mother Gig broke up in 1996. Yeah. We were gone for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And then we decided, you know, somewhere around, I don't know, 2014 or 2015, I just wanted to collect um, all of the ephemera in the world around this band. So started reaching out to everybody, people I hadn't talked to in, you know, 15, 20 years. And everyone had, somebody had, everyone had something, you know, some, the old bassist had a couple videos and then the guitar player had this cassette. And so we just kind of gathered it all together. So I, I actually have a lot of documentation from those early years. Mm -hmm. um, and we just kind of shared it internally and, you know, shared it with some friends. None of it is, <laughs> I think makes us uh, the best. It doesn't show us in the best light perhaps, but it was a it's interesting historical artifact. <laughs> sure. <laughs> with, um, well, you put out the record, my social commentary in 93. Was yeah. that um, <clears throat> like at that point, when you put the album out, you said you were like a senior year of college when you, when yeah. the band kind of formed, was that record put out in, like, were you guys like, was it like you finished college and you decided, you know, I want to pursue music full time? Like, what was the moment that yeah. you kind of started pursuing that? And tell me about that record coming out as well. Yeah. So we recorded that record and it came out. That was my senior year when that album came out. Oh, it so, was. Okay. Yeah. So it was our. Uh, our attempt at being a real band and not just a party band. We kind of knew at that point, at least I knew that this was something that I was going to continue doing after we graduated. Cause our, our, my graduation date was 94 and you know, the other, the founding guitarist, this guy, Rob, he was also graduating in 94. So, well, we kind of knew there was like a, maybe a, not a deadline, but you know, there was something coming up that I knew I wanted to keep going after that. Mm -hmm. um, and what ended up happening is like one by one, as everyone graduated and moved into their lives, like they would sort of pull back from the band and then they would get replaced by <clears throat> other musicians in the scene. And so mm -hmm. by 95, it's a completely different lineup than it was in 94. Um, I was the only probably consistent member at that point. Okay. Um, and then it was like, okay, this is, this is doing something. We were getting some local press. We were getting on better shows. We were starting to open for some touring acts. You know, we got a manager. Things were, were looking pretty good. We went in and recorded um, Smiling Politely, which was the, the record that came out, came out in 96. We recorded it in late, know, late 95, early mm -hmm. 96. Yeah. Okay. And once that album came out, did you, was the, did you tour more? Like, was the focus more on trying to make this band happen? But, but that was the last yeah. record you guys did, and then it was twenty years to the next one. Like, yeah, it's um, it's a really classic rock and roll cliche. Like, mm -hmm. we broke up the night, like the night we released the album was our last show. <laughs> oh, really? So, yeah, and it was all by design in a way. Um, you know, we finished the record. We all felt really good about it. Um, and then, I don't know, I, you know, I take full responsibility for, at that point, you know, Big Mother Gig was four, 
three and a half, four years old. And I just kind of felt like we were spinning our wheels mm-hmm. and I wanted to move the band to New York city. And so, um, and for a while there, I had all three other members committed and we were all going to move to New York. Um, and then one by one, they all kind of, you know, wised, wised up a little bit and decided, eh, maybe not. Mm-hmm. So by like August of that year, it was like, okay, they're not coming to New York, but I, I still am. And so I kind of decided like, let's just put this record out. Let's play one last big show. And then that's, that's the end of it. I'll see you guys later. And then we okay. actually, so we played this big show in Milwaukee. We had like 10 opening bands. We were, we were kind of well-liked in the scene. Like we were friends with all the other bands. So we asked everyone to open, you know, everyone played three or four songs. And, oh, that's cool. So it was yeah, like it more was, of like a big, big show with more like a festival ish. It was thing. like a festival, yeah. like a tiny rock club, you know, it was yeah. like hilarious. And, and, um, and then a couple of days later, we actually still had one show that we committed to, which was this, um, like ASCAP Ticketmaster Battle of the Bands. Oh, really? Yeah. So we drove to Madison and played that. And, you know, I guess Dave Perner was there from Soul Asylum. Yeah. Wow. He was like one of the judges or something. And so we, you know, <laughs> we were still kind of holding out that maybe at that show, you know, someone would present us with a record contract, but right. um, that didn't quite happen. So I moved. I moved to New York and that was the, that was the end of it. So if you guys would have won the Battle of the Bands, would it have been a different trajectory? It, I mean, it, for the, for the, that's interesting to think about. It is interesting <laughs> to think about. It, it would have th- at least caused me to seriously reconsider. I don't know that I would have, you know, I guess it would have depended on what the, what the real result was. Okay. Um, you know, because we got some good feedback. There were some record label people there. I remember our manager said that Capital, or not Capital, uh, at the time they were CBS records was, oh, right. you know, said some nice things about us and got our information. And I was like, okay, well keep me posted. You know, I got a pack <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I guess it never went anywhere. Yeah. Well, did you, what did you go to school college for? If you don't mind me asking. I studied uh, <laughs> communications. <laughs> oh, that's, that's what I did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I actually studied broadcasting. I was um, really, I was at the, yeah, I worked at the radio station. I had my own, you know, daily show, the morning show. Wow. And, um, morning. Morning. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Me and my friend, me and my friend, Aaron, we, <laughs> we uh, attempted to do like a morning zoo show on, oh, okay. <laughs> on a college radio station. It was just, I'm sure we offended everybody in that walking in the halls of that. Well, that's <laughs> the point, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's cool. Well, then what did you move to New York with a job in mind or was it like, I'm going to move there to really. Yeah, no, it was, um, spot. yeah, it was, it was a, it was a trip out of love. I will say my, uh, my girlfriend at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just sort of decided let's just do it. Let's get out of Wisconsin. We, you know, packed everything we owned, you know, a couple hundred dollars in our pocket and we just drove to New York city and we it's the kind of thing you do when you're, you know, 22 years old. Right. And you've got nothing, you know, to, to hold you down. So we had no jobs. We had an apartment that we had found and we moved in and that was that. And then we just started a whole new life and it was like, okay, we, first we got to get jobs and we're both just kind of doing whatever we could Mm -hmm. to pay the bills. And, 
Yeah. And we ended up actually moving to the Hoboken area. That's where we kind of put our foot in, you know, mm. put our, put our feet down. And was like, how quickly after you moved to, to New York, did you form Burnside Project? Yeah, that took a couple of years. Okay. Um, I was doing, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I didn't want to do uh, rock music um, because Big Man the Gig, you know, we started out as like a replacement-y, you know, who's do kind of thing. And, and mm-hmm. we never really, we always maintained a fairly, you know, uh, aggressive whatever sound, like a lot of loud guitars and loud vocals. And so when I got to New York, I, I started listening to electronic music and different other types of music. And I was like, I just don't want to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And it took me a while to figure out what was the natural fit. I tried doing like folk music for a while, you know, like just mm-hmm. me and acoustic guitar. And, and that didn't seem to really fit until I started putting some drum loops underneath it. And then, you know, in 99, I recorded what became the first Burnside Project album, but I didn't even have, I didn't even think of it as, a, it was just me, you know, I just, oh, okay. <clears throat> it was me with uh, some guitars and some samplers and, you know, some stuff that I'd kind of figured out in terms of making beats and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And-, and then, um, yeah. And so that was more like a demo, really. It was, the, it's the Red album. It, it was officially released in 2000, but you know, I made, I don't know, whatever you had to make a thousand copies on CD. And I both basically used them just to send to record labels and, and, you know, booking people and stuff like that. Um, and is that, is that the record? Is that how you guys, or how you got signed to, to bar none records was through that, that tape yeah. or album? Exactly. So bar none liked it. They also happened to be local, which was nice because they are in Hoboken. And so we started, you know, there were a, a couple of labels that responded, which felt really exciting. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, and it was cool. It was like Grand Royale, you know, the Beastie Boys label, they really mm-hmm. dug it. And so it was like, all right, cool. So, but bar none was the, was the most, um, I don't know, they seemed to show the most interest and they were very patient. So we would just record songs and send them to him, to, to Glenn Morrow at bar none. And, you know, he would like, this is cool. What else you got? So, you know, a couple of years later, you know, we finally agreed. They were like, okay, we're going to put out a record. So we did that. And that was, I, I would say the first like real album I've put out in terms of like, you know, and this is 10 years after my social commentary, you know, mm-hmm. the big mother gig album. Mm-hmm. Cause it was 2003 where suddenly it was like, okay, there's a publicist. The song is going to be on the radio. It's going to be in record stores all over the, the country. You know, it's before, I think maybe iTunes was happening then, but it was all about, you know, pushing product out mm-hmm. into the world and, you know, touring and, you know, playing it showcases and CMJ and all of these kinds of things. So that was, it was a fun couple of years with Prince I project. That's exciting. And did that all kind of happen quickly once you signed the deal? I mean, sounds like a lot was going on. You could put a record out, your your radio play and, and you're touring. And was that yeah. all like it sounds like they were able to help you quite a bit as far as that. Oh, goes. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if, you know, bar none saw something that they liked and they were able to turn it into something that would have a certain amount of ears on it, you know, mm-hmm. Um we had one song that got licensed to be the theme song to a TV show. So that became 
That's kind huge. of a big deal. It was oh, huge. Yeah. You know, it led to us getting signing a, a licensing deal with Sony. Um, so we ended up going to Japan for a couple of weeks. Wow. And like that was incredible. Um, I mean, that was that was a whole other animal because we were on this indie label, bar none. And then suddenly we were on a major label and we weren't at all prepared. And I don't think we really understood the magnitude of what was happening, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, because we got off the airplane and there were limos picking us up at Tokyo airport. And we're like, kind of looking at each other, like, what, don't they know who we are? (laughs) We're just a bunch of indie kids. Like, I think they got the wrong idea. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool though. That must've been, I mean, I, I can imagine that that must have been a huge, I mean, and just the next level, right? When you get to Japan and it's like, okay, now there's limos. Like this is really exciting. And it's different too, because, you know, Sony owns that country. And so. That's interesting. I've never been, but I didn't even have any idea that. Oh yeah. So Sony basically decides this is going to be, you know, a hit. And so they make it a hit. So we were getting airplay on all like the top 40 radio stations. So by the time we got there, you know, we played a handful of shows and they were sold out and people were singing along. It was the first time I've ever had that experience of like looking out and seeing mouths moving along with mine. It was mm-hmm. pretty incredible. Wow. Is that where the saying comes big in Japan? You, <laughs> yeah. You, know, you hear that? <laughs> yeah, it's a thing. It's a That's thing. Cool. I was big in Japan for a little bit. It didn't, I don't think it lasted long, but uh, <laughs> well, it was you fun. Put out four, four records with Burnside Project. I mean, that's, yeah, we did. We did. There, I mean, for sure. Um, and when, during that time, was that when you started doing the remixes? Because with your with Pocket, that's mainly just remixes, right? Yeah, exactly. So you know, I was always very um, what's the word? Um, I always wanted to be working. So when Burnside would have some downtime. Um, I still was like interested in the software, you know, learning all of these recording, you know, I was using reason and then Ableton for a while and kind of learning these things. And, you know, just kind of for fun, I took this Joanna Newsom song that had just kind of come out called bridges and balloons. And I just dragged it in my system and started putting beats underneath it. And I just threw it on our website and then like Brooklyn vegan liked it and they reposted it. And then, Stereo gum posted it. And then suddenly it, it was like, oh, maybe I should do this some more. So I started doing it just kind of like on my own. And then people started asking me to do their, you know, remixes for them. Um, and that was fun. You know, it was totally different than being, you know, Burnside Project had grown to being a band. You know, I had these, mm-hmm. these two core members, Paul and Gerald, who are still, you know, super close friends of mine. Um, but then pocket was almost like going back to being solo again. It was like just me. And um, yeah, so I did a lot of remixes. I don't even know how many, maybe 20 or 30 remixes. And then decided to make an album um, of pocket and wanted to keep the same idea. So I basically made um, music beds, you know, sort of in that same style, the kind of electronic rhythms with, you know, indie guitar Mm-hmm. And then I just sent them around and I got some, some of my like biggest influences musically to agree to sing on them. So that was another thing that was pretty incredible. We had Steve Kilby from the church and huh. Robin Hitchcock sang on a song and Tanya Donnelly from, you know, belly and the breeders. And so it was a, 
you know, primarily it was almost like one of those things where I felt like at the end, I think I can retire now. <laughs> like, like I sort of crossed all the boxes off. Right. Right. Was it, how were you able to get these, these artists on the songs? Was it just reaching out and Hey, yeah. would you like it, to? It was, it was, um, I don't know. I think some of it was in the timing, you know, this was, so it's uh, 20, I think I started the album in 2009 or so where you could just go to like a band, like the church, go to their website and just pull their email off and just like write them an, a note, you know, and mm -hmm. Steve Kilby would answer it. So that's kind of how it happened. I, I reached out on my own and I, and I got a few big names and then it became easier because then it was like, Hey, I'm doing this project with Robin Hitchcock and Steve Kilby. And, you know, and then it was like, Oh, okay. Uh, um, yeah. You, you had some credibility, had some credibility. And, you know, so I started putting out this, them as singles on my own. And then this label out of Florida said they wanted to put them out. So they started putting them out. And then this label in the UK said, we want to put it all out. So it's, it, was a, it was out on three different labels, Wow, that album. Yeah. So it finally came out officially, you know, in, in 2012 on this label out of the UK, like a dance label. Okay. Yeah. And so, so you were doing all these things kind of simultaneously, like uh, Pocket and Burnside Project. And then when did... Like, yeah, Burnside Project kind of stopped because, again, uh, so I'd lived in my wife and I, you know, we'd been in New York for um, 10 years, mm -hmm. you know, because we got there in 96. And so by 2006, it was like, OK, I think it's time, time to do something new. And mm -hmm. so um, I got a job in Portland, Oregon. Um, so that was the end of Burnside Project. You know, okay. we, we uh, around 2006, we played our last show. Um, things had been kind of winding down. Like, I think we all kind of saw, you know, with a band, with any band, you get moments where you have this momentum and then you kind of plateau. And that's really, that's a key moment. Like what happens when you plateau? Um, and for us, we had gone through that at least twice, you know, once and when, um, in 2003, when uh, the Networks album came out, and then a year later, when we got signed to Sony, we would have these moments, and then you would kind of plateau. And then we kind of plateaued around mm -hmm. 2005 and didn't seem to have any more momentum after that. So, and everyone was doing different things and getting more involved in other things. I was doing Pocket. So it just kind of started slowly fizzling out. And then it was totally amicable. I think mm -hmm. we all just kind of um, decided, you know, I'm going to move to Portland and you guys are going to stay here and, you know, maybe we'll finish that. Oh, so the, you said four records, that last record we had started in 2004 and we just tinkered with it for like 15 years. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Oh yeah. Cause so, that came out in 2016. That was still like, wow. Like 11 years later. Exactly. So <laughs> those recordings, like all those vocals and guitars were recorded when we were in, you know, New York or Hoboken together in our little studio there, but, you know, we would try mixing it and then get kind of frustrated with each other and then just say, well, let's forget about it. And a year would go by or two years and we'd try it again. And then finally we're like, okay, it's time. And so that's why there's that last record, even though it's 2016, but that music is all from Old. the original. Yeah. Older. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Okay. What's, what was the, 
I like when did you guys decide like, hey, you know, it's been a while. Let's let's finish this. Let's finish what we had started. Yeah, I don't I'm not sure, honestly, because because I'm in touch with those guys. So we talk about all kinds of stuff. And it's just kind of one of those things that has always been hanging, you mm-hmm. know, in the back, <laughs> you know, like. It's some it's it's it was unfinished business Got that it. we that we all knew at some someday was going to have to get taken care of. And it just kind of came down to when did we all have because I would guess I don't remember, but I would guess one of us said, let's do it. And I would say from that moment, it probably took another year and a half to two years before we actually finished it. It just, it's not a priority. You know, we all like me and Gerald, we both have kids and Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, Paul was working for the New York Mets, you know, like everyone had different things that was really more important to them. So it was like only when there was absolutely nothing else happening, (laughs) were we going to devote any time to that? Okay. And when you put it out, was there any uh, like plan to play shows at that point? Or was it just like, let's just get this thing out because. No, it was like, let's get it out. You know, Burnside project. um, One of the things that was really difficult about that band was there was so much, so many electronics involved Mm -hmm. and we are, we're really rock musicians, you know, and it's not really in our blood to like, Um, we're not, you know, gearheads when it comes to like electronics. So whenever we played shows, there was always this feeling that something is going to go wrong (laughs) because there's all these different devices that are sort of like trying to do their part. (laughs) And we're playing guitar along with those devices. And there were times where like really weird stuff would happen on stage. And suddenly we're like, Oh wait, we just repeated a verse on accident or, you know, the, the bass is, is pumping so loud that it actually caused the DAT player to skip. And now we don't know where <laughs> we're at in the song. So it was, it was always nerve wracking. Uh-huh. And when we put out the record in 2016, it was like, I don't know. I don't even know how we would do this kind of music today. Like the technology is all different. Like we'd have to take a class on how to, <laughs> you know, how to be an electronic band. Yeah, how to play your, your own songs. That's exactly. Um, was the finishing that Burnside Project record kind of what inspired you to get Big Mother Gig back together? Like it sounds like it was like kind of around the same time that you just yeah. I, mean, you I guess it did kind of it did kind of happen around the same time. I don't know. I think you know I had a daughter. I had a child. Uh in 2013 and i think something about the process of becoming a dad really sort of drove me to look back in the rear view to both of those projects uh burnside and big mother gig because by that point both of them were way in the past Uh and um you know the big mother gig really started out as a book idea that i wanted to write um i i had this idea that you know we were this band that, because the funny thing about the, the moment we broke up, you know, I told these guys, bands don't get signed, bands in Milwaukee don't get record deals. Um, so if we want any success, we have to move to a city like New York or LA. Mm-hmm. So when I did move in 96, lo and behold, in 1997, all the bands in Milwaukee got record deals. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, but you had the Promise Ring, you had Citizen King, you had this band Bender and the Buzzhorn, and all of these bands got signed to Atlantic. And, sure. you know, it was, it was the funniest thing. It's like my timing was 
well, that's my timing. It's exactly what it's. Uh, so anyway, I thought that was a really funny story. And I thought, well, I'm going to write a book about that, about, mm-hmm. you know, how we, if we, you know, this sort of like classic missing the opportunity kind of story. Mm-hmm. So I started talking to these bandmates and some of these relationships did not leave on good terms. So there was a little bit of reconciliation, but I was like, I want to just tell the story of this band. And so we all started talking and doing, you know, back then, which was really novel doing zoom calls, you know, in like Mm -hmm. 2014 or something, 2015. (laughs) And then of course, at some point during the book research process, someone goes, well, when are we going to play a show? And at the time I was like, Oh no, that's not what this is guys. Like this isn't, uh, but then I thought, well, actually, that would be a really good ending to the book. <laughs> <laughs> so that was really the genesis of it was let's book a show. Let's record a few songs, have this big reunion, and then that'll be the end of the book. Mm-hmm. And um, I uh, got bit by the rock and roll bug. And so I still haven't finished the book <laughs> because uh, I decided to keep doing it. The story's not over yet, right? The story's not over yet. Exactly. That's cool. Wow. So, well, now we, you know, you put out, this is the third record since the, you know, the return. Sort of, yeah. I mean, we did it. We did the EP, which Mm -hmm. was the sort of the original, uh, it's hard to say original, the final version of Big Mother Gig in 1996. Mm-hmm. that lineup, we recorded an EP called Almost Primed. And that was what we did. The reunion show was mm-hmm. around that. That okay. was in 2017. Then when I got to LA, you know, those guys, again, just like last time, everyone had lives to get back to, you know, they have jobs and families. And, you know, I was still, uh, you know, I work, I have my own music company in mm-hmm. addition to this. So I have a lot of flexibility and freedom and so I was like, you know what? I'm going to keep doing this. And they all gave me their blessings. So I found some new people, new members um, here in LA that are all originally from the Midwest and all, you know, same age. And they all grew up listening to the replacements. And, you know, it was really magical. So we recorded the second project, the second recording, No More Questions, which includes some of those songs from the EP. And then Gusto which is the new record, the one that mm-hmm. just came out. Yeah. So I guess okay. you're right. It is, it is three. Yeah. Wow. Well, are you also still doing uh, Mondragger? No, no, that was honestly, that was, um, that was a, a gnome de plume that I used for stuff that was neither Burnside project nor big mother gig. And so, you know, those are just sort of little solo records that I put out that, you know, um, yeah, they are what they are. They're just okay. Little, I just wanted yeah, to touch I, on that because I know it's part of your story. Yeah, it is part of the story. They would be called Richard Jankovich if that name had any kind of uh, ring to it whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. Well, where were you when this whole coronavirus pandemic hit? Because this album yeah. just came out. Um, obviously, it must have been worked on during the course of the last year. Well, coronavirus single-handedly delayed my album launch. That's basically what happened. So Gusto was recorded in 2019. Um, It was written early in the year and then recorded and mixed and mastered by December. So in January of 2020, we played a record label showcase 
and we played the album and we had, you know, a couple of labels come out and see us and we're really excited. And then uh, we started making plans to release the first single and then coronavirus happened. Oh, wow. And it was like, oh, well, we don't really know what to do. It seems like a bad time to drop an album. <laughs> <laughs> So we put out a few singles last year just to kind of put things out into the world, but mm. we just kind of sat on it. The world had far more important things to worry about than our little band. So, you know, we kind of knew, and it wasn't just coronavirus. There was so much happening last year with politics and with social justice movements that it just seemed like, like there just wasn't room for us. And so we kind of respectfully just took a back seat until things got a little bit more, I don't even know what the right word is, not normal, but just seemed like people had room for new bands mm -hmm. instead of all of the other stuff. Sure. So, yeah, so we made plans to release it and it just came out in April. We started releasing singles in, in uh, February. Okay. And then, yeah. yeah, the record just came out. Is there, I mean, the world's kind of opening up again a little bit. Um, are, is there a plan to, to, to take this thing on the road or what do you have planned for, for uh, big mother gig? Yes. So we will be touring. Um, we have tour dates coming up in September through October. Um, we have not announced them yet because there's still some dots or, you know, eyes to dot and T's to cross, but sure. we're very excited. Um, we're going to be playing some incredible venues. We're hitting as much of the country as we possibly can. Wow. That's exciting. When, when was the last time you did a tour? Has it been a while? I mean, obviously it's been over. A yeah. Year, but <laughs> I mean, prior yeah, to that. I mean, the last thing we did something close to a tour, you know, we did a handful of dates with the gin blossoms. Oh, wow. In, in 2018. Yeah. Yeah. They, they did like four, three or four West coast dates. Mm -hmm. And so we joined them on that. And that was the last time we played, you know, multiple nights in a row. <laughs> uh, also, you know, being with a gig is, uh, you know, we're all dads and, and in our forties and some of us maybe even more. And it's like, you know, to hit the road, it's a big thing. It's a big ask. Sure. Um, and this one coming up in the fall is worth it. We, we, we signed with a booking agent. And so we're, we're really excited about getting out there and playing to the, to the people. We really miss being on stage. Mm-hmm. I know I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It must be hard to juggle. I mean, I would assume I have two kids of my own, like <laughs> being able to like leave for extensive period of time and yeah. And, you know, toward the country is, are you, is the family coming along with you on these stores? Like, I mean, it sounds like a, it, it's just, this is just you guys and, and back to back to the roots having fun again. Yeah. Basically, you know, it's, we're not, the Foo Fighters where we're going to, you know, cart a, an <laughs> RV <laughs> filled with, with wives and children or anything. It's like, you know, it's, we're still playing, you know, 200 cap clubs. So the, the finances aren't really there to justify bringing all your family around. Plus, you know, sure. we actually planned it for September. I know I, I wanted September because then my kid's back in school. Right. And it's actually less disruptive for me to be gone. My, my daughter's eight now mm -hmm. and it would have been, you know, our guitar player is in a different boat. His kid is like two oh, maybe, wow. or maybe a little less. So it's a much bigger deal for him mm -hmm. to leave. But for me and our drummer, he also has a kid who's eight or nine. So for us, it's a little bit easier. They're in school. They're, you know, they're 
taking care of themselves a little bit more. And mm-hmm. it's easier for us to leave for a couple of weeks. Yeah. No, for sure. I can't imagine leaving like a two-year-old, like, yeah, sorry to their, your wife, like, good luck. <laughs> you know what I, I mean? would say the good thing about <laughs> them. Yeah. The good thing about them is, you know, his wife is also a performer, so she has oh. to go hit the road at times too. So it's just kind of part of their, you know, yeah. it's your turn to stay home. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. it's going to come back to him. Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, what, what did you, what have you been up to like over the course of the year? I mean, you had a record complete and then it's just dropping singles. Were you guys working on new music? Are you working on pocket at all? Or like, what did you have going on over the course of this whole <laughs> So pandemic? yeah. Um, I, I'm writing a lot. I have been writing a lot of music and some of those songs feel like they're going to be a new big mother gig album. Some of them feel like they might be a new Burnside project album. I honestly don't know. Um, It's, it's, you know, wherever the songs land is where they're going to end up. Um, I don't think I would ever do another pocket album at this point. It just seems like, uh, I'm so far behind the technology of remixing <laughs> and I just don't really feel a desire to relearn all of those tools, you know? Okay. Um, also I will say when I was doing pocket, like I would do a Radiohead remix and everyone was interested. It was like kind of a novel thing mm-hmm. back then for, you know, to hear, um, you know, Anthony and the Johnsons get remixed or whatever the case or cat power, whatever. Mm-hmm. Today, I, it's just not that interesting to hear everyone's getting remixed all the time. It's like the, we probably have an overabundance of remixes. And so it doesn't feel like somewhere where I would necessarily want to put my time or effort into. Mm-hmm. It's um, a different world when it comes to remixes, too. I mean, you weren't remixing top 40 songs. I mean, you're remixing of Montreal. Like, you know, yeah. how many, you know what I mean? Like it is. But it's. I mean, I love the remix you did of Gamma Ray. That's so Oh, cool. thanks. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. And I put Jay Retard in it because he had covered Gamma Ray. And so I took his version and Bex and I actually, it's almost like a mashup remix because you can oh, hear him. You can hear him singing along with, with Beck on with it. Beck, okay. Yeah. yeah, that's really cool. I did that also with, um, with the Radiohead one because they were covering uh, a Bjork song. And it was, you know, they had done like a live from their studio recording thing. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of captured it. And so it's just Tom on piano. So it's really easy to work with from a remixing perspective. Mm -hmm. But then I layered on Bjork, the original Bjork vocal along with it. So they're actually duetting on the song together, which is fun. Oh, that's rad. I haven't heard that one. Oh, Unravel is the one that you did. Yeah. Some of those are hard to find now because they, I don't know where they ended up. None, a lot of them were unofficial. So, you know, they just, I'm probably ruffled some feathers putting some of those out, but I also know radio had put it on their website at one point. So they must've liked it enough to actually. Wow. Yeah, that's then you mention it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember seeing that? Like, how did you find those on their website? That's huge. Uh, I mean, you find those things out. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. yeah. When that wow. Happens, they, you somehow it makes its way to you. So yeah. That's crazy to know that Tom York listened to that remix and liked it yeah. enough to say, "Hey, let's throw it up on the website." That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. 
That's amazing. Well, Richard, thank you so much for, for chatting with me today. I really appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure. You covered a lot of ground, man. That's like a 25 year career. You just uh, got through. <laughs> well, I thank you so much for, for, for chatting 25 years with me. <laughs> I appreciate the, uh, you know, the desire to even talk to someone like me. <laughs> no, man, I'm a fan. I'm a, I'm a fan. And it's, I love your, your story. It's really fascinating. And I do have one more question before I let yeah. you go. Do you have any advice for aspiring artists? Um, the only thing I would tell someone to, who's getting started in, in music or whatever your art form is, is just don't people, um, people sometimes get hung up on when you're an artist. Like, when do you become an artist? You know, it's not when you make money. It's not when you put something onto the, into the world. It's not, when you sell out Madison Square Garden, you become an artist the day you decide you wanna make art. And that's the most important thing. And during your career, if you're fortunate enough to have a long career making art or music, there's gonna be times where people are interested and there's gonna be times where people aren't. And that's just the nature of it. And that applies to everybody, you know? I mean, except for the lucky 1%. But for those of us who are kind of working musicians or working artists, some of your stuff is going to be really impactful and people are going to connect with it. Some of it, people aren't. And that's okay. That's just part of the game. It's part of the journey.